Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for November 18th, 2020. Each week we meet to discuss the news with uh, at a degree of snarkiness. And uh, happy Vicious Swa Day to all of those soup lovers out there. Uh, my name is Tom Hollingsworth. I am your jovial host today. And joining me as always is my friend and colleague, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Tom. It's good to be here. And uh, we are uh, taking a little bit of a break here from AI Field Day, which is going on this week as well. So you might see me uh, darting over there uh, before and after. Yeah, and I know that's a really full event. If you want to check that out, you can head over to our website at techfieldday.com and tune in to see some of the exciting videos going on there. Um, so we're going to jump right into our first story. Um, fresh off their latest uh, purchase of a Cisco or of a container company, Cisco is going to dive right back into the market and they are picking up a brand new company. Uh, they're going to be buying Bonsai Cloud, which is a Hungarian platform that's based on Kubernetes. Of course, I think everything is based on Kubernetes anymore. Uh, the acquisition really is for the team that put this uh, cloud offering together as well as some of the assets of the company. Um, it's expected to close by the end of Cisco's Q2, which is going to be January 2021. Uh, the Bonsai Cloud team had a single funding round that was about $2.5 million. So naturally, that wasn't big enough for Cisco to have to disclose the purchase price in uh, the press release that came out this week. Um, Stephen, honestly, I think the, the land rush is on for container companies. And this is Cisco's second one in as many weeks. Does this even qualify as news anymore? I'd say not. Um, sorry to say it, and I'm sure that the folks at Bonsai Cloud are wonderful, but um, this smells like a talent acquisition to me more than anything. And um, you know, it seems like a good talent acquisition. Um, I don't know a lot about Bonsai Cloud, but what I've heard um, is that they're good people and that they know their Kubernetes, and uh, Cisco's getting that. Um, I think the real news here is the fact that Cisco's revenues have declined. Uh, the company is obviously looking to diversify and to remain relevant in this new container-oriented world. And I think acquisitions like this are really going to help if the company can do that. So, you know, I'm not not happy about it, but I, I don't think that this is news as much as it could be. Yeah, I think the biggest argument that we've heard for a long time is that Cisco has trouble integrating pieces together. So buying teams to help that integration is really going to increase the longevity of their platforms. Exactly. Yeah. So in other news, uh, Cato Networks announced a new funding round this week. I know that's a company you've been following, Tom. Uh, their Series E raised $130 million on the back of uh, messaging around Secure Access Service Edge, also known as SAZE, or Self-Adjust Stamped Envelope. Cato has really jumped on the work from home model causing, uh, caused by the pandemic and is looking to expand beyond their 650 customers. Uh, this round is just seven months after a $77 million Series D. Tom, uh, does this signal the status quo isn't changing anytime soon? Yeah, normally I would say that SASE is the, is the reason why that they're getting all of this funding, uh, because that's a really hot topic now as a lot of the SD-WAN vendors are trying to pivot towards that model because it's a recurring service revenue thing. But you got to remember that this is only seven months after their last funding round. This is very much related to the fact that a lot of the investors that were involved are expecting the uh, work from home uh, status quo to really be the same, probably through at least the first half of 2021, if not longer. And so for companies that are looking to expand uh, hardware, they're going to be leaning very heavily on these SD-WAN uh, branch office service models. 
Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely a, a news story in itself. Um, I, I do wonder uh, how much of this stuff is going to be, um, you know, actually materializing versus the expectation that this would be an important trend. Um, and frankly, uh, not to be weird about it, but you know, you're kind of running out of work from home uh, <laughs> uh, momentum in terms of adopting new technologies. Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe it's more a long-term trend than a pandemic trend in terms of uh, the shifting workplace. Um, one thing that does jump out at me though about this, Tom, is that you're talking about uh, another round, a Series E round. Anytime, uh, it, it's like, you know, tropical storms. Anytime they get deep into the alphabet, I start worrying about them. And, um, you know, having taken in quite a lot of money here, I'm uh, assuming that either there was some sort of financial shenanigans here that the, you know, early investors wanted to kind of reshuffle their ownership, or that it's a last minute funding round in preparation for an acquisition. So I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, I've always been of the firm belief that Series E really needs to stand for exit, because if you go to Series F, that's another word that I'm not allowed to say on YouTube right now, but it means bigger problems. All right, um, Stephen, we're going to talk a little bit about networking, but we're going to mix some storage in as well. Now, Aruba released a notice this week that firmware updates are needed to save the storage on some of their switching devices. The Aruba 63 and 6400 switch families, which are positioned for the uh, mid-aggregation and core layers, uh, use SSDs in their devices to store configuration files, log files, and a bunch of other things that need to kind of stick around for a little bit. Um, the notice said that earlier versions of the firmware that was running on the switch were causing, and I quote here, um, accelerated and unintended write pace. Um, because SSDs do tend to fail after a certain number of writes, uh, that means that these SSDs could fail prematurely. And when they go, all of the configuration and log files and everything that make the switch run are gonna go with them. Um, the latest patch that they just released is going to solve this problem. So if you're running a 6300 or a 6400, uh, next week over Thanksgiving is probably the time you want to get the, the patcher tool out and, and do it while you're having some downtime. But Stephen, we've seen this shift from traditional rotational media towards SSDs for power savings and space savings in these switches. But is it a good idea when you have problems like this? Well, I'm not going to go on record as saying that people should switch back to spinning uh, spinning discs. But uh, one thing discs did well was, uh, you know, write endurance. And um, speaking as Mr. Storage, if I can put my Mr. Storage hat on here for a minute, the problem here is that we have a company that doesn't know anything about storage um, or a developer that doesn't. Um, I mean, frankly, uh, you know, these aren't really SSDs per se. My understanding is that these switches actually used eMMC which is honestly very, very much like an SD card. And if you have experienced the joy of using an SD card in something like a Raspberry Pi, then you've also experienced the joy of incredible slowness and unreliability and eventual death of the system, at least, and hopefully not yours. I mean, what's wrong with you? Relying on an SD card for your life? Anyway, that aside, um, these things are just not reliable. Um, that's not what they were designed for. They have limited write endurance. And um, compounding that is the truth of the matter, which is that, frankly, engineers are just bad at storage. And so I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that they left the A time, uh, act to access time uh, attribute on in the file system. And every time the system did anything, it is uh, sending a write to an EMMC, and that's going to crush it in just a few months because they probably underspec the size. 
So uh, what we need here is not to go back to rotational media, but to get a half a clue about storage and specify a device with proper, um, proper write durability, uh, configure the file system properly, and have enough of it because um, basically the durability of the whole thing is sort of proportional to the size of the whole thing. I know that seems weird, but think about it. You know, basically if each cell has a level of durability, if you've got more cells, like you know, if you've got 64 gigs instead of 32 gigs, well then suddenly you've got twice as many writes that the thing can handle. And pretty soon you, uh, you have moved yourself out of the window of problems. But this is not an Aruba problem. I'm not throwing stones at Aruba. This is a problem that has happened again and again and again. In fact, I had to replace both of my PFSense routers for pretty much the same thing. And NetGate is a wonderful company, but boy, did they screw up that design. So really, uh, this is not an Aruba problem. This is a problem of people not knowing anything about storage. And if you ever want somebody to lecture you about storage, you know my number. Uh, I think that the developers can definitely give you a call and you can you can help them out there and uh, hopefully this problem gets resolved down the road. Thanks a lot, Tom. Uh, always always happy to talk about it. Uh, so uh, Tom, uh, turning our, our heads into the clouds and security here, uh, Sysdig is bringing uh, heavyweight networking security to lightweight containers. Uh, the company announced this week that it's going to be incorporating the zero trust model into their container runtime security platform to help segment workloads in I.O. The visibility offered by Sysdig ensures that you can provide admission uh, control and communications control for any network container and see what's talking to what. Um, is uh, networking an overlooked part of container exposure, Tom? Well, you know, the more I dig into these containers, the more I'm starting to realize that while we do a really good job of deciding whether or not you can or can't spin up a whole bunch of them, we never actually figure out who and what they're talking to. And this has been a problem as long as virtual machines have been around. You know, Once there's a vSwitch connecting uh, VMs inside of an ESX host, I never see that on my security tools outside of the host. Well, amplify that by 10,000 because how many containers can I spin up in lickety split? Uh, a lot. So I like the idea that Sysdig, because they've already done a really great job of building a security platform for these kind of container management problems. They recognized that this management of network connections was the logical next step. And I know that there were a lot of companies that were spending a lot of time and a lot of cycles trying to solve this container security networking problem. And I think Sysdig is probably the company that's gonna have it figured out. Um, I'm gonna be interested to see though what the uptake on this is because a lot of people who are doing containers, yeah, they just kind of don't care because the container is only gonna be around for you know, 35, 40 seconds or sometimes a little bit longer. So I, I'd be curious to see if this is something that, that they kind of developed because it's a roadmap item for them or if it's something that their customers have really started to come back and ask for. Yeah, and I, I will say too that this is a, a, a common refrain, which is essentially, you know, people in field A don't really know a lot about field B. And, um, you know, we've seen this quite a lot with uh, hyperconverged and containerized solutions where they don't know a lot about networking or security. And don't ask me about storage. But, uh, you know, that they really, um, you know, <laughs> they need to step up their game. And uh, Sysdig is a company, one of those rare companies that sort of crosses the chasm into the security space. And, uh, you know, I think this is a this is a good move. Yeah, I would agree. I think we're going to see some great things from them in the future. All right, let's move on to some of our main stories. Um, let's start off with one from Microsoft, because guess what? They're kind of getting into the security game a little bit, but they're doing it from a chip perspective. And since Stephen, you are a chip guru, I definitely wanted you to kind of comment on this. 
they've announced a product called Pluton, which is a joint venture between Microsoft and CPU vendors, Intel, AMD, and Qualcomm. Okay, that sounds kind of weird. Pluton is a hardware-based root of trust, which can prevent tampering with the hardware at a low level of the system. Now, this is going to prevent hardware exploits from being kind of installed. Remember, there was that big flap from Bloomberg a couple of years ago about some of the uh, things that may have been stuck onto the system, as well as, um, you know, that little Intel problem that they had with being able to read memory registers and stuff like that. Now, the thing is, Pluton isn't brand new. It is something that they've been using in the Xbox One for years to prevent game piracy. And then they ported it to Azure to be able to do IoT security. Um, now, Stephen, why did it take a software company like Microsoft to kind of motivate people to do hardware-based root of trust? Well, you know, I think that that's not really a fair statement because, of course, the hardware companies have been doing this for a long time as well. So just for whatever it's worth, I mean, uh, you know, Intel and uh, Apple both have uh, hardware-based root of trust in their, um, in their processors. Uh, the problem is that at least to my understanding is that um, you know these things have to be activated and have to be used. So Apple is in a good position because they can essentially build the T2 into everything. They can add it to the operating system, they can add it to the firmware and they can make it happen. And um, it, it's been a very successful product for them, uh, asterisk, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, on the Intel side and AMD as well as, as Qualcomm, um, you've got a bunch of companies that have tried to kind of go it alone on the hardware front. And frankly, the, the challenge there is just working with OEMs and working with software providers and, and, and trying to get this stuff um, actually used and used correctly. Um, and theoretically, that could be done. Um, so from my mind, the story here is not why is Microsoft doing something that Intel should have been doing. The story here to me is quite simply that... Um, you know, you've got Microsoft who's in the position to actually make this thing happen, um, working with its OEM partners to make it happen. In other words, Microsoft is saying, you know, look, we want to be part of this discussion. We want to be part of the development of a hardware root of trust and, um, and, an, and an integral part of that so that we can have it implemented correctly in our software. Um, you know, if, if you think about it, think about the only places that this kind of technology has been deployed are in highly verticalized devices. So you've got iPhones, then you had Macs, you have the Xbox, you've got you know, Sony in, with the PlayStation. Um, this stuff is being developed in places where one company controls the hardware, the firmware, the operating system, you know, all the way up. And I think that that's really what we're seeing here. We're seeing a, a, a goal of Microsoft, the maker of still the world's most popular um, you know, personal computer operating system, uh, trying to work with partners to develop a, uh, you know, hardware root of trust that makes sense for them. And I think that's a wonderful move. Um, there's another aspect here that I'm really interested in as well. And that's the question of, should these things be part of the CPU or not? Um, if you have been following along uh, the Apple story, so apparently there's uh, some flaws in the T2 that have been able to be exploited to basically, you know, circumvent it. Uh, this is bad, obviously. Um, making it worse is the fact that it's hard to fix because it's literally, you know, part of the chip. Um, it's not like they can go replace that. And in, uh, it sounds as if they might not even be able to replace the firmware in order to fix the problem. 
Um, it's the same, you know, similar things have happened on the Intel side. Um, you know, certainly Intel's uh, uh, various hardware security efforts in the CPU have not been a huge success. Um, you know, AMD has rolled this out in server chips and there's been some, uh, you know, very low uptake of it. So I really wonder if the story here isn't more, we need more um, operating system vendors to care more about hardware and security uh, than it is we need more hardware and security offerings. I don't know what your take is, Tom. I'd say you're probably right. And I know that the, the T2 problem has really bitten Apple quite a bit because you're right. Once that's exploited, there may not be any way to fix it. Bravo to Microsoft for trying this and for and for building on what they've already been doing. But yeah, this is something that really should have been more software-based or at least done in a way that allows it to be updated and regularly fixed. Because if you can invalidate that root of trust, if you can worm your way in there and cause big problems, you basically have the keys to the kingdom at that point. And it doesn't matter whose chips you're in because it's all running on some kind of a common framework. So hopefully this will allow for tight integrations with Windows into the hardware to provide these kinds of trust factors and prevent the firmware from being overwritten by malicious you know, actors, but not prevent the firmware from being updated to patch exploits like Spectre and Meltdown and Platypus and whatever the next one's going to be. So fingers crossed that they're able to come up with something. Yeah, absolutely. So another story, Tom, this week, um, we saw some news from a mobility field day favorite. Uh, Salona is a pioneer in uh, CBRS private LTE networking equipment for the enterprise. Um, they're fresh from a Series B funding round of $30 million. Uh, they've just announced a partnership with Aruba, a Hewlett Packard enterprise company to sell CBRS gear through Aruba channels and partners. Uh, given that uh, Aruba has the dominant space in the wireless access point market, this is certainly a great move for Salona, as well as for Aruba being able to offer this new technology. But Tom, I'm wondering if you can take a moment to explain to us what is CBRS, why is this important, and how is this going to be important in the future? Well, uh, Stephen, we just published an article on gestaltit.com uh, kind of talking about Salona's last presentation at Mobility Field Day, uh, which kind of talks a little bit about some of these announcements. But essentially what you're talking about with CBRS is it's a wireless technology, but it's not based on Wi-Fi. So it, your existing access points don't run CBRS. It's a smaller slice of a different spectrum that offers better coverage patterns, and uh, basically it's less congested. Also, the licensing structure is a little bit different. So you guys are probably used to seeing wireless technologies in the 2.4 and 5 gigahertz spectrum, which are basically a free-for-all. Um, uh, your microwave oven in your kitchen is probably a good example of that. Nobody cares how microwave ovens operate. They can just blast across that whole spectrum. This 3.5 gigahertz spectrum is, is lightly licensed, which means there are the people who already have stuff there. They're allowed first crack. Then there are the people who paid for a license, they get next crack, and then the rest of it is available for use as long as you don't stomp all over the other two people. Now, realistically, what does this mean? It means that for people who are going to be wanting to offer um, cellular LTE type deployments with wide range, and maybe they don't need a massive amount of throughput, uh, that's gonna work really well for them. So the initial use case that I thought of was a hospital. So if you've been in a hospital recently, um, a lot of them use something called a distributed antenna system or DAS. That allows them to put cellular connectivity all throughout the hospital so that you can stay on your cell phone and not take up their wireless spectrum. 
DAZs are expensive because you basically have to put a cellular base station on the roof of your on your uh, building and distribute it. This would allow you to use existing access point technology because that's essentially what Solona is doing is they're building this into access points, put it in your environment and offer CBRS alongside your Wi-Fi. And that's where the brilliance of this with Aruba comes into play. So this means all you've got to do is buy one more access point, pull one more cable, mount it right alongside the Aruba AP that you just bought or you're just switching out. It runs over PoE. It uses TCP IP. It all goes out the WAN, but it's not Wi-Fi. And that's a huge advantage for certain kinds of people, hospitals, warehouses, regulated environments. And there's already a client deployment out there. The iPhone 11 and all of its variants and the iPhone 12 and all of its variants have a CBRS radio built into them. So as soon as you turn it on, it just works. So I'm happy to see this. And if you wanna check out a little bit more about that, techfieldday.com, we just published a bunch of the videos, like I said, from Mobility Field Day 5. Um, you can get an overview of all the cool things that Salona is doing with this technology. Yeah, I, I have to agree that, um, you know, when I first, it, it was that last bit, Tom, you buried the lead. Um, the, the, the answer is you've already got the client device. All we're waiting for is the rest of the network. Um, personally, uh, I'm pretty excited about this technology and I really feel like this could be a, um, a nice augmentation. It's not like it's gonna replace Wi-Fi or cellular, but it's, it's a nice augmentation to it in, in certain environments. And um, you know, frankly, I've been very impressed by what Solona has managed to put together um, with this technology and, um, you know, how far the company has gone in such a short time and with such little money. Um, it's a pretty impressive uh, rollout. Absolutely. So, uh, Tom, speaking of less impressive rollouts, um, let's talk about the launch of Mac OS uh, Big Sur. Um, the biggest concern came uh, last week when apps started launching slowly after this upgrade. In fact, I was sitting in this room on camera last week and Zoom refused to launch while I was trying to start up one of these uh, recordings. It turns out it wasn't my fault. <laughs> it, through investigation and trial and error, um, users found that by disabling network access temporarily fixed the issue. I, I didn't try that, I should have. Um, the culprit turned out to be uh, the Online Certificate Status Protocol, otherwise known as OSCP. This checks for expired PKI certificates and was down or at least heavily loaded during the launch of Big Sur. The failure was the, the wait time for the server not to answer. Um, further investigations found that macOS Big Sur's gatekeeper service designed to verify application integrity sends information about all apps on your system to Apple. Um, Apple has said uh, with, they've released more information, um, thank you, uh, about it, including fixes uh, designed to keep it more safe and secure. But um, Tom, are we seeing the results of companies that are too interested in analytics and not interested enough in user privacy and frankly, user experience? And is this going to be an ongoing issue? Well, this is this is an amalgamation of so many other problems. You know, you would expect a cloud service to be up all the time. And I'll tell you that Apple had massive issues on Big Sur launch day. They yanked two beta releases of iOS because nobody could get them authenticated to run. The OSCP server was down for hours. And here's the interesting part. OSCP was designed to solve a very specific problem. How do I verify if this certificate should have been revoked? You know, even if the, the certificate lifetime hasn't expired yet, because we've run into those problems a lot. Nobody uses OSCP though. It's, it's there, it's, it's, you know, it's like the CBRS radio on an iPhone 11. We'd like to use it, but the infrastructure is just not there. 
Well, the problem is, is that Apple still checks against OSCP to verify whether or not the cryptographic signature on an app works. Well, guess what happened? OSCP went down. Well, that broke everything. But the other problem is kind of what we alluded to in the, in the second half of the story. It turns out that Apple made all software firewall vendors change the way that they do their monitoring. So they had to, there are no more kernel modules. They have to use this other kind of networking kit extension, which is great in theory, right? Well, someone noticed that Apple was basically allowing 50 of their applications to route around that and not even be checked at all. It's like a trusted partner program that you can get signed off by Apple for a small fee. But then that raised a lot of security community hackles about well, what happens when Apple allows you to basically buy your way into this program and then you launch malware. And that's part of what Apple had to kind of backpedal on. So we've exposed to the fact that Mac OS is listening a lot more than we had originally expected. And they're kind of putting their thumb on the scale for people that they trust. But just because Apple trusts them, does that mean that I trust them? Because there are things that Apple would let happen that I would be aghast and horrified about. So I think Apple's going to have to kind of step up to the plate on this privacy issue. And quite honestly, they're going to have to take a few licks on it simply because they did something that compromised the security and privacy of their users. And how many times have they trotted that out? Even in the big Sur launch, they were talking about how they were going to prevent you from seeing all these trackers that were operating in Safari. But don't mind about those other apps that are over here in the corner routing around little snitch in your favorite software firewall. So, I mean, Steven, you're, you're kind of a privacy guru too. Is this something that bothers you? Yeah, it really does. And the thing that bothers me the most is what you were talking about by having, um, you know, basically uh, different classes of uh, service for different uh, partners, uh, I say in the best euphemism of the tech industry. You know, I mean, I'm a little, a little snitch user. Um, I am absolutely concerned about, uh, you know, privacy and not, I mean, I think that there is, it's kind of a, a, I don't know, red herring uh, when people say, you know, oh, I'm concerned about privacy and then people are like, oh, well, what do you got to hide? That's not what it's about. Maybe I don't have anything to hide, but maybe you do, or maybe somebody else does. It's not about me. It's about all of us. And I really feel like systems like this I mean, the bottom line is Apple has done a marvelous job of communicating privacy to uh, buyers and end users and, and um, evangelizing the need for privacy. And frankly, they haven't lived up to their own marketing in this regard. Again and again, we've seen Apple do things that are um, in opposition to the company's stated goals around privacy. And that really, really concerns me because it, it makes me feel like nobody's home because, you know, you look at it. So like the, the new iOS, has, you know, it scrambles Mac, Mac addresses on your Wi-Fi, you know, it scrambles the Mac address on your Bluetooth so that people can't track you. You know, Apple absolutely is um, on your side when it comes to many aspects of security and privacy and frankly deserves a lot of credit for that. But that's only, you know, the left hand and the right hand, meanwhile, it just doesn't care about that stuff or hasn't thought about that stuff and isn't, um, you know, isn't committed to it. And so then there's the other aspect too, which is sort of the user experience aspect. So as you said, um, those of us who were unlucky enough to be launching applications right when Big Sur was launched and this OSCP server was overloaded, 
we're pulling our hair out wondering what's wrong with my Mac? How come my, how come my Mac won't launch, you know, any applications? Like I couldn't launch Zoom, I couldn't launch PowerPoint. Why not? Well, it turns out that was a system that not only is out of my control and that I didn't even know was there, but it's a system that shouldn't be there. I mean, frankly, who really cares? Um, you know, the reason that, that this whole um, technology that this OSCP was rolled out, in my opinion, is because a static list or a, a statically an updated list of revoked certificates wasn't practical for DNS. Well, we're not talking DNS here. We're talking application developers. A complete list of Apple revoked application developer keys is probably less than a megabyte. How come we're sending this stuff over the internet? Did anybody think of the implications of that? And then there's, of course, the moment when you say, oh, wait, shutting off my network makes the system just not check? Well, <laughs> I mean, really? And this whole thing, it just strikes me as just amateur hour at Apple. And, I, and it's not what I expect from the company. And I would, uh, you know, I would hope that they would do better. Yeah, that's the hope. And, and that's honestly, I think a lot of where our pain points are on this. It's not that we hate what's going on. We want them to do better overall. And, and they do pretty decent work on building software. It's just a little quirk here and there that, that they have to work out. So here's hoping that whatever feature of California's national parks, the next version of Mac OS is named after, it's a little less bumpy on the deployment side. All right, well, that should just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. We want to thank you all for tuning in. Um, Stephen, I know that you are a super busy man today, and I know you're going to have to get back over to AI Field Day, but if the folks who are watching our episode want to go check out some of the stuff that you're doing, what's the easiest way to get uh, to see some of the cool stuff going on over there? Yeah, I recommend uh, just uh, as soon as this is done, uh, just go to techfieldday.com. Uh, you'll see AI Field Day playing right there on the homepage. You can also click on the AI Field Day link and you can learn more about the companies and the presentations. Um, this is all about applications of enterprise AI. So if you're a fan of Gestalt IT and a fan of the rundown, this is right up your alley because essentially we're not saying, you know, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if AI could blah, blah, or ooh, Skynet is scary. What we're saying is AI is everywhere. And the, and the bottom line for me is that AI is going to be your co-pilot pretty soon. It's going to be um, it, it built into everything, just like you know, personal uh, you know, assistance, AI assistants are appearing in cell phones and everything. Well, guess what? It's going to be in everything, every application. There's going to be AI assistants. There's going to be all sorts of applications of this technology. And that's really what we're looking into. So we're hearing from some of these companies. In fact, we're going to hear from Aruba, who we just spoke about. Um, in addition to Juniper and Intel and Cisco, um, you know, a lot of different companies in this in the enterprise space, but also some cool companies in the emerging technology space. Uh, you know, one of them that we've mentioned before here is BrainShip. So anyway, go ahead, uh, go to TechFieldDay.com. You know, click on AI Field Day and learn more there. Also, maybe go to Utilizing-AI.com and you can catch my weekly podcast on the topic of AI in the enterprise. Awesome. And if you want to check out some more great content from us here at Gestalt IT, make sure you tune into our website at gestaltit.com. Um, if you're watching this on gestaltit.com because you didn't catch the live broadcast, you can always do that at 1230 Eastern time on Wednesdays on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash gestaltit video. Now, Stephen and I uh, will be taking the week of Thanksgiving off uh, next week because we have some turkey or other things that we want to eat but we will be back the next week hopefully the world doesn't explode on black friday with all kinds of crazy tech problems 
But if it does, we will definitely be able to talk about them. So for now, for myself, for Stephen Foskett and um, the rest of the Gestalt IT family, we want to thank you very much for watching. Enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday if you're here in the U.S. And we will see you all in December.